Daniel 9, and we're going to read a few verses together of this prayer. Now, I preached on this prayer last Sunday, but I want to approach it from a different direction today because it is such a vitally vitally important uh, passage of Scripture. Daniel chapter 9. Stand with me, please, as we read God's Word together today. Daniel 9 and verse number 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, meaning now we have a new king in Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, and he is a Mede. His name is Darius. He's a regional king. He's not the king of the entire uh, Persian empire. The king of the empire is a man named Cyrus, but Darius was a famous general, and he was awarded the Babylonian area of the Medo-Persian empire. So that sort of sets the history. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and I made my confession, and I said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. And then Daniel goes ahead down through verse number 19, and he prays. He confesses the sins of himself first and his nation, the nation of Israel. Thank you. You may be seated. Many of the books that you would read and the scholars that you might follow, they would say that the theme of the entire book of Daniel is that God rules in the affairs of men and nations. The theologian would say God is sovereign. It means the same thing. God rules. God is in control of both nations and individuals. We go back and begin in the book of Daniel, chapter number one and verse number two. The very first of, or the second verse, the entire book, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. What that means is, is that it wasn't just the Babylonians' military power that caused Israel to fall. It was God's hand that Israel would fall, that Israel fell for reasons known to God, not because they were weak at that time militarily. Daniel had been thinking about all these things, and uh, he had been reading and studying the book of Jeremiah. I'm not going to run you all over the Bible today in a Bible study, but I want you to turn, keep your place there and turn back to Jeremiah, just a couple of books back. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, Daniel said, I was studying the book of Jeremiah there in verse number 2. I understood by books the years that the Lord 
uh, revealed to Jeremiah. And so in, Matthew, in uh, Jeremiah chapter number 25, this was the exact passage that Daniel was reading and studying. Jeremiah 25 and 11, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There it tells you how long the captivity will last. It tells you that the captivity will occur in Babylon and that the land will be a desolation. And in verse 12, it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. So after 70 years of captivity, Babylon is going to fall. And that nation, saith the Lord, will fall for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Daniel also was probably studying chapter 29. Turn there with me, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to your land. And I know the thoughts that I have, that I think toward you. Now, this verse is quoted frequently in America today. It really was about the nation of Israel and their captivity being able to return home. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with your whole heart. And a promise of God, I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and gather you back to the mountains of Judah. So Daniel been studying these passages of Scripture. He's an old man now. He's in his upper 80s, possibly even in his 90s, but he's still active in the service of God. And one of his primary ministries is he is a prayer warrior. Of all the people in the Bible, he may be the greatest in prayer. We see him praying in chapter one or in chapter two when his life is threatened because nobody can interpret the king's dream. Daniel can interpret it after prayer. In chapter 6, we see him praying again openly, publicly. This was the message last week. He had a place to pray. If you're ever going to pray regularly and faithfully, you need a place. He had a time to pray three times a day. If you're going to pray reg- if you're going to be a prayer warrior, you got to have a place, you need a time. He had a, even a posture, an attitude. And that is he got down on his knees. People don't pray because they have no pattern. It never becomes a routine. We eat three times a day. We take a bath every day, I hope. And we do other things routinely. But we don't think about we ought to develop a routine of prayer. We need a place. We need a time. We need a proper attitude. He knelt on his knees. Humility was a quality of Daniel. And as he is studying the Scripture here, perhaps on his knees this day, because people usually read the Scripture and it motivates them to pray, I pray after I read Scripture, it warms my heart. After I've read my Scripture and my heart is warm to pray, then 
I pray differently after having read the Scripture. And he's studying Jeremiah, and he sees that God has warned Israel that if they break his covenant, if, if they disobey his law, that they will be exiled. They will be exiled to Babylon. That has already now been fulfilled. They will be exiled for 70 years. The period has been determined. That's not a random period of time, by the way, that number 70. It's because for 490 years they had broken God's Sabbaths. They had forsaken his house. They didn't go to the temple anymore to worship God. And because they no longer had time to worship God, God said, I'm going to send you into captivity, and I'm going to reclaim. I'm going to make you pay back every one of those Sabbaths that you desecrated. And so that ends up, if you'll calculate 490 years of Sabbath breaking, it ends up being 70 years. God says, I'm going to get my Sabbath one way or another. That's a message America maybe need to, needs to hear this morning, huh? And so he realizes now that they're in the 67th year, as close as we can figure, of that 70 years. That within just a couple of three years, the nation will be going back home. The 70 years will be paid, if you will. And so what does he do? Verse 3, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made my confession. And he said in verse 5, Oh, God, we have sinned, and we've committed iniquity, and we've done wickedly, and we've rebelled by departing from your commandments. He prays fervently, urgently, passionately. If we're not going to pray from the heart, then don't pray. Prayer is not saying words, ladies and gentlemen. Prayer is speaking from our lips the wellsprings of our heart. It's the deepest emotions and feelings we have. And James says, if you were not going to pray with fervency, don't pray. It is the fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. So this is Daniel. Verse number 19, he concludes his prayer, and you sense his urgency. You sense the emotion here. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive us. He's asking God to act. Oh, Lord, hearken to us and do something, Lord. Defer not. Don't wait. Lord, for your own sake, for the city and the people are called by your name, and you sense his urgency, his passion, Hear, forgive, listen, act. Don't wait, Lord. He prays to the Lord. And guess what? An angel, Gabriel, appears. Now, you and I probably haven't had an answer to prayer by an appearance of Gabriel, but he did. And Gabriel appears and says, your prayer's been heard. In fact, God's going to answer your prayer. But it's going to be more glorious than even you prayed. You're praying that God would bring forgiveness to the nation and forgive the people of their sins. Well, Daniel, let me tell you something even more remarkable than that. Instead of you worrying about the past, God will forgive their sins. But God is going to give you 
not an understanding of the past 490 years. He's going to give you a revelation of the next 490 years. That's remarkable. Daniel has praying in light of the captivity, 490 years and the 70 years of Sabbaths, and he's confessing that sin. And the angel says, Daniel, don't worry about the 490 years. It's about over with. I want you to focus on the future 490 years. And I don't have time to go into it, of course, this morning, but if you'll go down to verse 24, 70 weeks are determined. And there begins the most remarkable passage of prophecy in the entire Old Testament. It's the entire timeline now from the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It actually gives the date of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then it goes into the future and tells us even about the tribulation and the Antichrist. Bible prophecy people will tell you that is arguably the single most important prophetic passage in all of the Old Testament Scriptures. So Daniel's prayer was powerful and effective, wasn't it? Now, his prayer primarily was a prayer for his nation, number one, this morning. I want you to observe that. Daniel has now lived in his own lifetime, 80-some, 90 years or so. He has seen the decline, the fall, the collapse of two of the great empires of history. First of all, Israel. And he tells us that Israel fell because Israel was a wicked nation at that time. Israel had departed from God. And so in chapter 9 and verse 16, look with me right in the middle of the verse. It says, the reason that Israel has fallen, the city of Jerusalem has fallen, it's for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Israel declined because of sin, because of evil, because there were no longer any righteous people in the nation. Now, look up here and hear me and get this. I don't want you to miss this. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because there were no righteous people. Do you remember the story? He said to Abraham, if I could find, Abraham said, if I can find 50 righteous people, will you uh, spare the city? And God said, yes. And then Abraham begins to bargain with God, and he bargains him down. Well, what if there's 40? Yes, I'll spare it. What about 20? Yes, I'll spare it. What about 10? And they could not even find 10 righteous people in the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God's judgment came. So when we look at God judging nations, we have to remember two things. Number one, God judges nations because of their sin, their evil, their wickedness. It's not only the, the nations we think of as being very evil, it was also Israel, the apple of God's eye, because God is a just God. It doesn't matter who you are. God will not overlook your sin, whether you be Babylon or whether you be Israel. And God judged Israel because of their sin. Israel didn't fall because Babylon was superior in military power. Israel 
suffered the judgment of God because she was wicked. She had left God. Verse 16 tells you that. And the history is clear. Ladies and gentlemen, as we sit here today observing the anniversary of our nation, concern for our nation, history is so clear. Nations don't fall necessarily because they don't have enough armor. They fall from the inside. They fall because they are corrupt. They fall because they're rotten from the core. And this was the case of Israel here. Now, Babylon, not only did Daniel see the fall of Israel, he also lived to see the fall of Babylon. And Babylon was, they never knew God. They hadn't departed from God. They were an evil pagan power from the time of Genesis 11 until now, which would be over a thousand years. Babylon's the symbol of evil, of drunkenness, of revelry, of immorality, of idolatry, of paganism, of occultism. Babylon's the very symbol of it. I preached the entire message taking you through the entire Bible, showing you from Genesis 9 and 10 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation that Babylon is the symbol of rebellion against God and wickedness. And Daniel was there the night she fell. Go back to chapter number 5, just two or three chapters. Belshazzar had replaced Nebuchadnezzar and two or three kings in between them. And now Belshazzar throws a party. According to chapter 5 and verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine before the thousand, and kings in those days never drank wine publicly. It turned into an orgy. The prostitutes were brought in. It was a debauched orgy of sex and drunkenness and evil in its worst forms. And according to verse 5, you're in the middle of that drunken party with thousands of people in that great banquet hall. Suddenly somebody looks and there's a man's hand writing on the wall. People look at it. Is it real? Is it an aberration? They didn't have PowerPoint then. It was a real hand. And they looked at it and chills started to go up and down their arms and the hair began to rise on the back of their necks. What is that? It's writing this strange language. Can anybody tell us what it says? Somebody goes to the king, Belshazzar, look, what is that? Is this some sort of a party trick? No. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. And finally, somebody goes and gets the queen mother, and she comes and she says, I don't know what it means, but look there in verse number 11. She says, there is a man. Oh, thank God there was a man of God. There is a man in that kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in this man. And he was a young man then, but he's an old man now. And I think he's still alive. Can somebody find him? And they bring him in. And in verse number 12, they describe him. He has an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, and he can interpret dreams. 
and he can show people the meaning of hard sentences, and he can dissolve doubts, and he does it all in the name of his God. And down in verse number 14, the king then addresses Daniel as he, the old man is brought in, maybe on his cane, his walking stick. He help him to the dais. The king addresses him in verse 14. I've heard of you. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in them. Well, nobody else can tell me what this means. If you will tell me what this means, I'll, give you, I'll make you an important man. You'll be among the most important in the land. I will dress you in opulent clothing. I will put gold chains around your neck. I'll make you somebody. And Daniel looked at the king and he said, thank you, but no thanks. I don't need anything you have. But I will tell you what that hand means. That writing says you are weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. And the old man turns and walks out. This night, your soul will be required of you, Babylon. And that night, we know the date on the calendar. Ancient history has pegged this as one of the best authenticated facts of all. It was October the 11th, 539 years before Jesus Christ. The general was Gobrius, the, Mede, the general of the Mede army, Gobrius. And later his name was changed to Darius right here. And Cyrus was the overall king of the empire. And their soldiers had been working for years upstream, and they diverted the great Euphrates River into a channel that took it off to the side. The river had flown, uh, uh, flowed underneath the walls of the city of Babylon, and it was impregnable. Nobody could get into Babylon. But now that by diverting the river channel, they lowered the water, and the Persian army walked in almost on dry ground. And within an hour, within an hour, that drunken orgy was over. Those people were scattered. Their blood ran in that hall. The streets were in chaos. And by the morning, the Medes were in charge. Babylon was no more. And Babylon fell because of the judgment of God. Oh, Babylon was so proud. She thought she was so great. Babylon, Isaiah said about her, the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. You think God's impressed with America? Like a drop in the bucket. Remember who he is. He's God. He inhabits eternity. He created the universe. What is a nation to him? If I could address this nation today for a few minutes, I'd give them a warning. Here's what I would say. If I could have 30 seconds of TV time, it would cover the nation. Here's what I'd say. America, your problem is not the national debt. Your problem is not Iran or China or Russia. Your problem is God. Your problem is God. 
because he is angry every day with the wickedness of nations. He said it in his word. So Daniel is confessing. He knows the problem of both Israel and Babylon. It's sin. It's that the people have departed from their God. The prayers like Daniel's shaped this country. Prayers of confession like Daniel prayed here, they're the prayers that shaped the United States. I look back at several illustrations, and I don't like to read too much in public. You kind of lose your audience. Can you, are you all a good enough audience you can really concentrate for a few minutes and look up here and listen to me? Is that everybody? Is that unanimous? Or is that just, just the people down here in the front five rows? Huh? Is this everybody? I want you to listen to me. The king of England was taxing the colonists. He forcibly was lodging troops in private homes. They called it quartering the troops. People were having to give up their home to a group of men they never had seen from England. And then the people would move into their barns, into the woods, into public buildings, out wherever they could live. And they began to be restless and there was a big mob scene in Boston, and we had them what's called the Boston Massacre. The British troops shot into the crowd and killed five people one day. And that just continued the incitement, and then finally the Boston Tea Party. 378 bales of tea brought over from England, thrown into the harbor. The resistance was growing. People were saying, uh, we can't be taxed, no taxation without representation, and uh, the resistance was growing to leave England and to start our own country. And down in Virginia, hearing about this Boston massacre and the Boston Tea Party, there was a man named Thomas Jefferson. And he drafted a measure supported by Patrick Henry and uh, Richard Henry Lee and other notable names of our history. Here was the measure they drafted. This house being deeply impressed by the hostile invasion of our sister colony, Massachusetts. We deem it necessary that the first day of June be set apart as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer to implore divine interposition. And it is ordered, therefore, that the members of the house attend with the speaker and the mace to the church in this city, that would be in uh, Richmond, for the purposes aforesaid, and that the Reverend Mr. Price be appointed to read prayers, and the Reverend Mr. Guatkin to preach the sermon. So the legislature ordered the people to do this and to have a day of prayer to meet in a church in Richmond. George Washington was in attendance. He wrote in his diary these words on that date, quote, I went to church all day and I fasted all day. After the service, though, the Virginia legislators gathered at a tavern there called the Raleigh Tavern and began to talk, and out of that one meeting, they began to form the first Continental Congress of the United States. Three months later, that Congress met in the city of Philadelphia, and America was just about to be born. It started in a prayer meeting. Six months later, in Massachusetts, the Provincial Congress, led by John Hancock, declared, and I quote, 
in circumstances as dark as these, it becomes us as men and Christians. Can you imagine the legislature anywhere today saying, it becomes us as Christians? Well, we'd have riots, wouldn't we? CNN would go nuts. It would blow up the TV. We, the legislator, have met as Christians to reflect that whilst every prudent measure should be taken to ward off the impending judgments, the 11th of May may be set aside as a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer to confess our sins, and listen to this, to implore the forgiveness of our transgressions. They're talking about begging God for forgiveness to make the nation righteous again. About the same time, General Washington, with the war now started and going against him, wrote from his headquarters in Connecticut, March 6, 1776. Thursday, the 7th of March, being set apart by this province as a day of fasting, prayer, and humiliation, to implore our Lord and giver of all victory to pardon our sins and our wickedness and to bless us with his divine favor and protection. And then he says something as the commanding officer of the army, all officers and soldiers are strictly enjoined to pay due reverence and attention on that day to the sacred duties due to the Lord of hosts for his mercies already received and for those blessings which only our holiness and uprightness of life can alone encourage us to hope through his mercy to obtain. The president of Yale University, a man named Ezra Stiles, stood before the Connecticut General Assembly. The war now ended, and President Stiles said, England had over 60,000 troops with a naval force of 22,000 seamen and over 80 vessels. But our independence was sealed and confirmed by God Almighty. Now, what he's saying is there's over 80,000 British fighting men against them. The largest the Continental Army ever was was 48,000 men. They were almost doubled in size, and they had no navy. England had 80 vessels. And then he said this, because of this victory, the United States are under peculiar obligation. I'm quoting, the people of the United States are under peculiar obligation to become a holy people under the Lord our God. We are under a peculiar obligation to be a holy people unto the Lord our God. This was not a preacher. This was the president of the university speaking to the Connecticut General Assembly. Or 75 years later, President Lincoln, in the most eloquent of all the proclamations about praying and fasting as a nation, Here's what the president said, 1863. Whereas the Senate, 
of the United States, recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations. Stop. Hold it. Are you listening to my words? The Senate of the United States recognizes the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations? Can you imagine Chuck Schumer saying that? Can you imagine Mitch McConnell saying that? Nobody up there is saying that kind of thing. That God Almighty is the supreme authority in the affairs of men and nations. And then Lincoln continues, by resolution requested, they have requested the president to designate and set apart a day of national prayer and humiliation. He continues, listen to his words. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own, own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions. Can you imagine any president saying that today? It is our obligation to confess our sins and transgressions in humble sorrow with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And he prays that they will recognize this sublime truth. And then Lincoln continues, inasmuch as we know that nations, like individuals, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in the world, may we not justly fear the awful calamity of this civil war which desolates our land? Listen to his next phrase. He says that the calamity of the civil war which desolates their land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. The President of the United States is telling, making a public proclamation to the people that we have this civil war going on because of our sins. Boy, that's powerful. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have, we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by our superior wisdom and virtue and intoxicated by unbroken success. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and to confess our national sins and pray for clemency and forgiveness. I've probably given you too much information in one piece there. 
particularly because it's written in this ornate language of the past. And yet, five different illustrations I've shown you that in the past, even the leadership of the nation, the political leadership, I haven't quoted one single preacher, recognized that when America gets away from God, America's in trouble. And you have historical figures begging the people to fall on their faces, to, hum- to be humble, to fast, to spend time in prayer, even calling the wars the punishment of God upon our sins. What a difference in atmosphere. What a difference in climate from where we are today in our politically correct time. We can't even call upon God because we don't even know which God we're calling on. Is it God or is it Allah? Or is it Buddha? Or is it a pet rock? We are so out of touch with the spiritual world that we don't even know which God we're addressing our prayer to. If a president were to say, Almighty God, the God of the Bible, the God of our forefathers, he would be immediately chastised by the entire media and elites in this country for being politically incorrect, that he was insensitive to people of other religions and things like that. The one thing in common every one of these men said is, America, confess your sins, humble yourself, or you will face the judgment of God. Well, I've preached to you a number of messages here on Daniel. So this is the Daniel, 80, 90 years old. A godly, humble, spirit-filled man his entire existence. How do you summarize the book of Daniel? Daniel couldn't change Babylon. But he wouldn't let Babylon change him. And here we are in a Babylonian culture today when ethics and morality is under attack, when everything has been turned upside down, what are you and I going to do in this Babylonian culture? I would pray that we would fall on our knees and say, God, as a nation we've sinned. As an individual, I've sinned. But God, help me like Daniel to not be sucked in by this culture today. Help me to live righteously. When I study the book of Daniel, there's so much. I could preach on it for six more months. You know what I notice about Daniel? He never compromised his character one time. He lived right in the middle of all that evil, he never sacrificed his character. He never compromised his integrity one time, 
not one little bit. Even when his life was on the line, his integrity remained intact. And he never forgot that God was in charge. You see, if you and I understand that God's in charge, we never fall into despair, do we? People are in despair because they don't really believe at their heart level that God is truly in charge of the affairs of men and nations. The interesting story about a man named Jerome. He's one of the church fathers, godly man, brilliant scholar, born in 347 in Dalmatia, which is today Slovenia. He is the man who translated the Bible into the Latin language. We call it the Vulgate. It's the most famous translation of the Bible, perhaps in medieval times. And then Rome fell. The Vandals came in and sacked the city of Rome. What does Jerome do? Jerome moves to Israel. He moves to Bethlehem, and he finds a cave, and he goes in a cave... (laughs) And he spends the last year of his life in despair. He writes, the world sinks into ruin. Rome is gone. The world has sunk into ruin. You don't find that kind of despair in the life of Daniel. He confesses the sins. Two nations have fallen in his lifetime. Look over at chapter 11 and verse 32 and see what Daniel says. Two nations have fallen, but he says, the people that know God will be strong and they'll do exploits. We're not in despair. We're not hiding in a cave. Today, we look at America, our hearts break for our country, but we're not hiding in a cave. The people that know God can be strong. And they can do exploits. As long as God is with us, as long as God's on the throne of our heart, we have hope. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.